this recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. As a matter of fact, my mother showed me how if you turned it in to the inside rather than roll it upon the outside, that it appeared to fit. The problem is that by the time I left the car and got to church, uh, something happened where they'd all fallen out and hit me uh, right at my knuckles. I also probably had on a plaid shirt with a long collar that you put out over your lapels on your coat. Had a pair of pleated pants. Uh, probably my Boy Scout belt. Uh, Cub Scout, that is, because I never got beyond Cub Scouts. <laughs> the Scoutmaster said, look around, half of you will be gone, and I left that night. I never liked the uniforms anyway. I thought those were the most ridiculous little hats I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> anyway, I still had the belt and wore it quite often. You remember canvas with that buckle? And uh, so I was in church, and it was the first time that I think I'd ever at least focused on the fact that Jesus was riding on an ass. I was sitting with Chuck Watson. Um... Uh, we played that game where you drew the squares and tried to get the letters and the squares to make words. But I remember in the midst of playing that game in the pew that I heard somebody up front, probably the preacher, because in those small town churches, they didn't share that authority with anybody. And so uh, there were no lay readers or lay lectors or anything. Probably the preacher read the Palm Sunday lesson and it struck me two things. One was that he said ass. That was so funny to me. I mean, when you're seven or eight years old and the preacher says ass, you just got to laugh. Uh, particularly when you're with Chuck Watson. There's something humorous about this pretentious uh, preacher in a small town in Oklahoma, uh, full of himself and reading a triumphal entry story and he says, ass, and little boys laugh. The second thing that struck me that morning was he'd said that he was riding on an ass and the colt, and a colt, the foal of an ass. I laughed even louder to myself, and maybe audibly, because if you take that literally, he's riding two animals. Now listen this morning when we read, when they say he was riding an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. I had this picture of Jesus straddling the two, standing up. <laughs> holding the reins with two hands, kind of like that rider in the circus, riding the two horses. Now, the reason I began with a reference to the preacher saying, ass and eyes, a little boy laughing aloud at that, and the kind of ridiculous picture of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the King, straddling those two beasts trying to stay up as people were proclaiming that he was the King of the world and he didn't feel or look very much like a king. Because laughter or humor is the best way to approach Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. Uh, humor, laughter is the best way. It's a narrow escape, but it's an escape into faith. Some of you may know the work of Christopher Fry. 
English author and playwright. He wrote an essay some years ago entitled Laughter, in which he said, if I had to draw a picture of the person of comedy, it is so I should draw the tears of laughter running down the face. One hand still lying on the tragic page which so nearly contained the answer, the lips about to frame the great revelation, only to find it's gone disconcertingly as a chair twitched away when we want to sit down. Comedy is an escape, not from truth but from despair, a narrow escape into faith. It believes in a universal cause for delight, even though knowledge of the cause is always twitched away from us, which leaves us to rest on our own buoyance. In tragedy, every moment is eternity. In tragedy, every moment's eternity. In comedy, eternity is just a moment. In tragedy, we suffer pain. In comedy, pain is a fool and suffered gladly. Charles Williams once said to me, indeed if it was the last thing he said to me, he died not long after, and it was shouted from the tailboard of a moving bus over the heads of pedestrians and bicyclists outside Midland Station, Oxford. When we're dead, we shall have the sensation of having enjoyed life altogether, whatever's happened to us he yelled from the back of the bus. The distance between us widened, and he leaned out into the space so that his voice should reach me. Even if we're murdered, what a pleasure it is to have been capable of being murdered. And having spoken those words for comedy, away he went, like that revelation which almost came out of the ether of laughter. He was not at all saying that everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. He was saying, or it seems to me, that there is an angle of experience where the dark is distilled into the light, either here or hereafter, in or out of time, where tragic fate finds itself with perfect pitch and goes straight to the key which creation was composed in. And comedy senses and reaches out to this experience. It says, in effect, that groaning as we may be, we move in the figure of a dance. And so moving, we trace the outline of the mystery. Laughter did not come by chance, but how or why it came is beyond comprehension, unless we think of it as of a kind of perception. The human animal, beginning to feel his spiritual inches, broke into an unfamiliar tension of life where laughter became inevitable. But how? Could he, in his first unlaughing condition, have contrived a comic view of life and then developed the strange rib-shaking response? Or is it not more likely that when he was able to grasp the tragic nature of time, he was of a stature to sense its comic nature also and by the experience of tragedy and the intuition of comedy. The difference between tragedy and comedy is the difference between experience and intuition. The experience we strive against 
in experience, we strive against every condition of our animal life, against death, against the frustration of ambition, against the instability of human love. That's our experience. In the intuition, we trust the arduous eccentricities we've been born to and see the oddness of a creature who has never got acclimatized to being created. Laughter inclines me to know that human being, the human being is essential spirit. His body with its functions and accidents and frustrations is endlessly quaint and remarkable to him. And though comedy accepts our position in time, it barely accepts our posture in space. I like the ability to see the street humor and the comedies that we're making of our tragic lives because both are true always and at the same time. Anybody who doesn't know that has either not had experience or not reflected upon it. Norman Vincent Peale, as little as I respect him, said once, that people sometimes are so acclimatized to hearing and seeing things as they are that they don't see the comedy in what things they see. It was his practice as he traveled around the world when he came into a town to go into the newspaper on Saturday night and open the social pages to get a little piece of gossip about town in order that the next morning he would be able to say something personal about the town in which he was. He was in normal Illinois. And so that Saturday night he looked in the social pages and he realized that there are two towns in Indiana near one another, normal and an interesting sounding town, Oblong. And so he got up in the pulpit the next morning and said, I saw the most interesting thing in the paper last night. The headlines on section three read, Normal Boy Marries Oblong Girl. <clears throat> but he goes on to say, nobody in the congregation laughed. They were so accustomed to those words as being, shall we say, normal, <laughs> that they didn't hear the comedy in their lives. My roommate in college, <clears throat> it was 6'10". My guess is he still is. He was from a small town in Oklahoma, not as small as I, but small. He was from Seminole, Oklahoma. Anytime he ever greeted anybody or was introduced to anybody, he would say, hi, I'm Gene Johnson. I'm from Seminole, Oklahoma, which is the hub of the Tri-City area of Seminole, Wewoka, and Holdenville. <laughs> but my daddy's from Bowlegs, which is near Henrietta, and you've got to go through Bowlegs to get to Henrietta.
If we can't see the humor in the... Uh, the normal kinds of things in which we live, and we know nothing about grace. The ability to laugh at ourselves, I think, is that narrow escape into faith. And as we begin to approach Palm Sunday and Holy Week and the experiential tragedy of Good Friday, then we must go about it realizing that our experience says no. But in spite of that evidence, our intuition says, why not? That's the nature of comedy, which releases us from the tragedy. Well, this is the incredible, ironic gift of Jesus to the world. If you remember the story, <clears throat> I'm talking about the sacred story of the people of God, which began with the creation of Eve and Adam. It began with the covenant with Abraham and continued through those wonderful sacred stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, et al. Until they became a people, as God had promised them, I will give you my blessing, you will become a people, and I will give you a land. So they got the land and they got the people. And they looked around and said, what kind of God are you? All these other people got kings. Why can't we have a king? God said, because I'm your king. And they said, well, can't we just have one king? Can't we just try it? God said, okay, I'll give you a king, but you're going to be sorry. And so they got a king, and they were sorry. David and his son Solomon set him up over the fact that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Israel back together again. They got fractured and were in captive by the Babylonians, and they learned what happens when you try to be just a people rather than a people blessed to be a blessing. But even so, there was something within them that began to well up out of the voice of the prophets. Prophets are not ones who foretell the future, they're ones who are able to see into the present. And then they can draw conclusions about the future. And the prophets said, we're going to get a new king, but this new king is going to be very different from the old king, and not at all what you expect. For the expectant hope of the alter ego of the Israelites was that a great new king would come and usher in the people of God to be the kingdom on earth that rules all other kingdoms. And they were most susceptible for thinking that at this time because they were being occupied by the Roman government. And so they were most susceptible for the word that had begun to spread uh, throughout Israel that somebody was claiming to be the king. No wonder they were scandalized. No wonder they called Jesus a blasphemer, because what they had wanted was a king on a 
mighty horse and chariot to usher in the rule of the people of God, the Israelites, to control and dominate and then therefore plot the destiny of the world. Isn't that what all good kingdoms do? But what they got was somebody from Nazareth. Remember what was said about Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? They got a carpenter. You remember the reason why that we know that Jesus was a Jew? Well, because he stayed home and worked in his father's business and his mother thought he was God. <laughs> if you can't laugh at these, it's a tragedy. And so what they got was this carpenter's son from Nazareth, who rather than coming in in a mighty golden chariot, came in on an ass, enough to make even little boys laugh out loud. An ass. Why? Why was it? Well, you need to look no farther than the book of Job to look for the ironic answer. And that is that God has never been in the business of granting us what we want, but what we need. The world didn't need another egomaniac ruler, and it still doesn't. Either in small communities, congregations, or in the world. What the world needs is someone who doesn't take himself quite so seriously, is willing to be humble and to ride on an ass. What the world needs is humility, obedience, and love. And this is what the king offered. He also offered reconciliation for the tragedy that we made out of our lives by pulling off an incredible surprise, one that makes you laugh out loud. Humility is the ability to see your humanity and laugh. Obedience is the ability to listen for what it is that you're called to be and do it be damned what anybody else says. Don't go to Jerusalem, they said. If you go, you will surely die. Stop here. Don't do that. Obedience means to listen to your call and do it, become it, be it. Uh, come whence it will, cost what it may. A thousand ways to say no, one way to say yes, no way to say anything else. Obedience means to listen and to go ahead and be the Christ if that's what you're called to be. Jesus was not convinced even through the end, but he kept following and obeying, even as ridiculous as it sounded, even as much as they hooted him and mocked him and laughed 
at him. As ridiculous as it seemed, that seemed to be what he was called to be. Humility, obedience, and love. The unconditional love offered by God in Christ, and that is that we need not be powerful or brilliant or bright. We need not uh, acquire or amass either authority or material in order to be loved or lovable. We just need to be. There are no requirements for that love. It's offered free. It's a free gift, no strings attached. It's an unconditional love by unilateral action on behalf of the one who gave you breath. You think about it for a moment. It just seems scandalously and ridiculously true. My experience is that life has its incredible tragedies. I mean incredible because they're unbelievable. Well, what kind of God would? And the fact that I did not request my birth and I cannot escape my cross, and wondering what it is that I'm to do in the meantime, the in-between time, and yet, even though I experience it to be lonely and confusing, a mysterious, half of it mystery, the other half guesswork, unstable relationships, instability of my own identity, never quite knowing what the next step will be or bring. And so my experience is tragedy, but there's something within me that intuitively says it's a comedy. Comedy, of course, in the dramatic sense does not just mean ha-ha, it just means that it has a happy ending. Maybe a meaningful ending is a better synonym. And so when we take ourselves so damn seriously that we dread our death or embarrassed by it, then we ought to remember <clears throat> that our life was a gift that we didn't request. And the one who came to give us new life Life everlasting, eternity. I look like a clown riding on an ass. And little boys know that there's something happy about all this that's going on this week. They laugh out loud when they hear our Savior is riding on an ass. Fry ends his essay with, I think, some very poignant words about laughter. I've come, you may think, to the verge of saying that comedy is greater than tragedy. On the verge I stand and go no farther. Today's tragedy, today's experience, hammers against the mystery to make a breach which would admit the whole triumphant answer. Intuition has no such potential, but there are times in the state of man when comedy has a special worth. And the present is one of them, a time when the loudest faith has been faith in a trampling materialism, when literature has been thought unrealistic, which did not mark and remark our poverty and redoom. Joy of a kind has been all on the devil's side, 
And one of the necessities of our time is to redeem joy for the faithful. If not, we're in poor sort to meet the circumstances. The circumstances being the contention of death with life, which is to say evil with good, which is to say desolation with delight. Laughter may only seem like an exhalation of air, but out of that air we came. In the beginning we inhaled it. It is a truth, not a fantasy, a truth voluble of good, which comedy stoutly maintains. Maybe a good prescription for Holy Week is to see the comedy in the midst of the tragedy, to be able to laugh about the mighty king who ushers in the kingdom, and to see our creation, our breath drawn as an inhalation of the spirit and the exhalation of joy in laughter, and to realize that the day that God dies is a good day. It's a good Friday. And then to see that that tomb, which is tragic, is absolutely empty. And to wonder why it is that we take life so seriously. And maybe we ought to be reminded that we can be as the angels who fly because they take themselves lightly. Amen.